You're listening to the Food Files podcast, the latest from the Oklahoma State University Robert M. Kerr Food and Agricultural Product Center. Here's your host, Darren Scott. Welcome to the Food Files. I'm your host, Darren Scott, and today's guest is a returning, Dr. William McGlynn. Good morning, William. Good morning, Darren. You know, today's podcast is a little bit of a sequel to your last visit when we talked about canning. So today we're going to talk about your, or at least one of your roles in um, the building here and at OSU and in the state of Oklahoma as a process authority. And beyond. Well, we'll save that one for the next podcast. All right. (laughs) So uh, let's start out. What is a process authority? So a process authority is someone who basically determines how long you need to cook something for. And I say cook, it doesn't have to be cook. It's, it's some kind of process to render the food safe and stable uh, for retail sale. So is there, are there any particular you know, levels of education, requirements, or anything like that? Yes. So this gets a little bit tricky. Uh, if you look at the regulations, the regulations, and I'm talking about federal regulations here, they do define what a process authority is. And basically what they say is a process authority is someone who has the education, training, experience, and equipment necessary to make that determination of when a food is safe or how it needs to be processed in order to be safe. And that's all it says. So it's not like there's any kind of licensing board or anything like that. Um, It's basically whoever has the experience and whoever has been accepted by the authorities as having that experience. Can you tell me why it's important that we have a process authority? No. Well, if you look at the history of canning, you know, that goes back about 200 years. And so when they first started canning foods, you know, people knew kind of from trial and error that if you cooked it long enough, it was safe. And if you didn't cook it long enough, it might make you sick or even kill you. Mm. But no one really knew what the science behind that was. And so it was kind of trial and error, kind of by experience. There was a little bit of black magic to it. But those were the original process authorities. And then about a hundred years ago, um, there was an effort to really understand in a more systematic way the science behind that and to, to come up with a system for being able to figure out exactly how you would determine what a safe process is. And so, yeah, if you have a safe process, you can be sure that the food that you're canning or otherwise processing is not gonna make anyone sick or worse, but if you don't, then you're kind of rolling the dice. And so it's Mm. very important to have that confidence, and that's what a process authority provides. What kind of foods uh, need to be reviewed by a process authority? Yeah, and you know, that's kind of expanded over the years a little bit. It started out really just being canned foods. Uh I say canned, but that means sort of anything that's sealed in a package. So it could be a glass jar, metal can, pouches these days, anything like that. Um, Anything that's going to be shelf-stable at room temperature uh, is going to benefit from having that kind of review. And originally it was just canned foods, but now it's kind of expanded to where it can be important for uh, dried foods, um, anything really that's going to be shelf-stable at room temperature. Even maybe things like even uh, desserts, like cakes or pies? Generally not for baked goods. And, okay. you know, there's always a gray area. So there, there's always some type of product that, that you can say, okay, 
ordinarily that type of product wouldn't, but this particular product does because of some unusual characteristics. But, you know, ordinarily it's something that has to undergo some kind of process, a cooking process, a drying process, something like that to make it shelf stable. Uh So most baked goods, no. Okay. If I, you know, in my facility make a product and I get a process authority uh, letter and I, I guess maybe I should ask, um, when you uh, do the testing, how do you uh, convey that information uh, ultimately to the person who gets the, uh, the, mm-hmm. the testing? Yeah, so you kind of gave away the answer to that already. It's a, in the form of a <laughs> process authority letter. And again, that's something that comes from the original federal regulations. That's what they talk about. And so... Yeah, it's basically a letter that contains all of the test results. It contains the opinion of the process authority as to what regulatory category the food falls into. And it also contains the processing recommendations and any other critical factors that would have to be met as part of the process. Okay. Well, you know, if I say, for example, get my process authority letter uh, in 2020, you know, is there ever a time that I would need to go back and revisit that letter? In other words, once I've gotten it in 2020, am I good for the next, you know, in perpetuity? (laughs) I don't know about in perpetuity. That's a long time. You know, the answer as with so many things is it depends. There is nothing in the regulations that say that the process authority letter is good for X number of years. And after that, it has to be redone. So in general terms, if something changes about the product, how it's formulated, the ingredients that you use, how it's processed, and then that would be a time when you would definitely want to have that reassessed and maybe a new letter generated. I've also observed just from personal experience that if you have a letter that's you know 20 or 30 years old, even if nothing has changed, the regulatory authorities may want you to go back and have that reviewed just because it's been so long. And and things do change, you know, we develop new information, new potential uh, hazards that we didn't think of before, microorganisms that weren't a problem in the past, we now realize maybe things like that. So yeah, there are reasons for having it renewed from time to time. Well, you know, that's one of the things I was kind of curious is, you know, when you say if the recipe has changed, uh, does that mean it has to be a very large change or could a, a small change be important to have uh, or a, an important reason uh, to have the food uh, reevaluated? So what we usually say in the letter is any significant change. Okay. Um, and so what does that mean? It's what I usually tell folks is, you know, if it's a very minor change, you know, we added jalapeno peppers to our salsa and now we add jalapenos and maybe half and half jalapenos and serrano peppers or something like that. But the percentages haven't changed. Okay, that's probably not going to have any significant effect on the the characteristics of the product. But for other things, like if you're adding lemon juice or vinegar or something that might affect the pH, you know, even a small change in that may significantly affect the safety characteristics of the product. So there's a little bit of judgment involved there, but I tell people when in doubt, have it reassessed. So is there uh, maybe a one type of food or category of food that's easier for you to evaluate than uh, another? Yeah, I would say anything that has a lot of acid in it, anything that has a really low pH, that's usually fairly straightforward. And so, you know, that's a lot of different food, any kind of canned fruits, 
Uh, a lot of salsas would fall into that category, barbecue sauces, things like that. It's usually pretty easy to figure those out. Uh, it gets a lot trickier, and usually there's a lot more testing involved when it's a, a low-acid food, a high-pH food. There's a big difference between those two categories, for sure. You mentioned salsas. Well, uh, maybe I'm using all fresh ingredients versus maybe canned or commercially uh, purchased ingredients for my, uh, my product. Would mm -hmm. that help? Uh, I'm sorry, would that potentially influence um, you know, how easy or difficult it is? Do your evaluation and maybe not, maybe difficulty isn't the right word, but maybe uh, ensuring that the results that I get are going to be consistent. Mm. Yeah, that can certainly make a difference. And, you know, probably the biggest, the most obvious candidate there is tomatoes. You know, you mentioned salsa. So if you're talking about a salsa or some other tomato-based product, canned tomatoes, one of the advantages, well, they're available year-round. That's one advantage. But another big advantage is that they have usually been standardized in terms of the acid content. And if you look at the ingredient statement on a can of tomatoes, you'll usually see citric acid as one of the ingredients. So they add a little bit of acid, again, just to kind of standardize that acid content. And so that becomes pretty stable. If you're talking about fresh tomatoes, the acid content of those can vary quite a lot depending on the growing season, depending on how ripe they are when they're picked, depending on the variety of tomato. And so you can get a lot more variability there. And that, that's important to be aware of for sure. In general, with fresh ingredients, yeah, you're, you're likely to get more variability. What would be the most uh, difficult food that you've ever had to write a process authority letter for? <laughs> uh, you know, I thought about that. The ones that are more difficult are the ones that are kind of out of left field that you don't really have a lot of information about or there has mm. been a lot of previous research done on. There are all sorts of novel things that come along that you kind of have to start from scratch and think about the microbiology involved, the chemical characteristics and things like that. So we've had a number of those in recent years, things that have become popular. Um, kombucha is one that comes to mind, which is kind of a fermented tea. Okay. Uh, and it's, you know, we don't have a whole lot of experience with that uh, from a scientific standpoint. And so there's been work that needs to be done. Um, cold brew shelf stable coffee, you know, again, there are things that they're kind of novel products that haven't been on the market for a long time. And so there's a lot in some cases, there's a lot that we don't know about the safety characteristics of those products. And so figuring that out has been a challenge at times. But I'll tell you the most unusual product I ever had to deal with. And this was a kind of a puree that was made from green chilies. So like uh -huh. Anaheim chilies, something like that. And this person was taking them and cooking them down and basically just cooking the peppers and adding salt. And he cooked them for, I, I'm going to say like eight or 10 hours. He boiled them. <laughs> wow. That's a long time. That's a long time. So it was, it was mush at the end of that process. And he would can that up and he would use it as an ingredient. Well, normally the pH of peppers is fairly high around mm. five, five and a half. In this case, when we did the test, the pH came out to right around four, a little bit under four. Huh. And I, he swore up and down that he wasn't adding any kind of vinegar or lemon juice or any other kind of acid. So something was changing during that extended cooking process. And I didn't know what it was. I thought about it. I asked several other food chemists. They didn't know what it was. No one had heard, heard of anything like that. 
And what we finally determined was that we think that just that extended cooking process kind of broke down the pectin in the pepper mm -hmm. and liberated some acid in the course of doing that, some organic acid that would normally be bound up as part of the pectin. And that was, that was, the, that was the best theory that we could come up with for what was causing that pH to drop. But how do you write a process authority letter for something like that? You don't know what the, what the critical cook time is without doing a lot of testing. And so that was an interesting project. Hmm. I think he well, ended up giving up and, and selling it as a refrigerated product. I can understand that. You know, um, that kind of leads me to my uh, final question. I'm just kind of curious, you know, when you have those kinds of cases that are kind of out there, you know, um, where can you turn for additional sources of, of information? You know, um, you know, you're the process authority. So basically, you know, you're sort of um, on the line, so to speak, for um, the letter that you're going to write. So, you know, uh, are there resources, you know, is the FDA out there kind of double checking what you do, you know, you know where do you turn for additional mm -hmm. uh, sources of help? There are some professional organizations of other process authorities, uh, and that can be very uh, helpful. So, sort of like the stonecutters? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sort of like that, yeah. Fewer rituals, but... <laughs> but a benevolent brotherhood for sure. So that can be a good source of information. You know, sometimes someone else has already come across a problem that you haven't yet. Scientific literature can be good for that as well. You know, you asked about the FDA, do they, uh -huh. regulatory agencies, do they check up on you? Um, yes and no. Uh, a lot of times they don't know either. Uh, if you submit something that's so out of line that it, it's obviously wrong, they'll usually catch that. Mm. Uh, most of the time, they actually to defer to the process authority's judgment because they don't have a whole lot of experts who can carefully kind of review all of these things. They get so many applications that it just wouldn't be practical to do that. Sometimes they can be uh, of assistance, um, but sometimes you just have to knuckle down and do the testing yourself or find okay. someone else who specializes in the kind of testing that's required and have them do that testing. We rely a lot uh, on other microbiologists to kind of help out with that. I've heard that microbiology is sort of the basis for many of the <laughs> other sciences. <laughs> I've heard that too, usually from microbiologists. <laughs> well, on that note, let's wrap up this episode. Uh, thanks, William. All right. Thank you. Uh, I'd also like to thank the listeners for tuning in to this episode of The Food Files. And also I'd like to thank AgCom for the production of this podcast. Uh, for additional information, uh, please make sure to visit our website at www.fapc.biz. Until next time.